Welcome to DMs of Vancouver, the show where we talk to our awesome friends and amazing guests about how to help you become a better GM for your tabletop games or review games that we've played recently from a GM and a player perspective. I'm Jesse Boros, and my pronouns are he, him. I'm Sean Hagen, and my pronouns are also he, him. Uh, we're your co-hosts for this podcast, and we've got another great episode for you. This podcast is recorded and produced on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In recognition of that, we ask that you please support Raven, a charity that helps support Indigenous people throughout Canada. You can find them at raventrust.com. And today we're going to be talking about Numenera. Yeah, Numenera was it's made by Monty Cook Games, right? Yep. Okay, yeah. Today we're talking about Numenera from Monty Cook Games. Yep. Hope you enjoy the show. Roll for initiative. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Speed roll. That's what uh, Numenera does. So, uh, yeah. So, like we said, Numenera is from Monty Cook Games. Uh, it's a D20 system. Uh, well... I don't know if D20 system has a specific meaning, but what I mean is that it's a oops, it's a game that uses a D20 as its uh, core die for resolution, for rolling. It's the main one that you roll. Yeah. Um, trying to get technical, and then my brain failed me. Yeah, and uh, it's a... Oh, it sounds like you want to say something. Yeah, uh, I mean, more specifically, it's the cipher system. Yes. Uh, which is uh, a D10, and then you roll a D6 for healing when you like take time to recover. And that's pretty much all you... Sorry, a D20, not a D10. And you roll yeah. a D6 for healing. And that's pretty much all you roll, right? Yeah. And uh, it's a system where it's set up so that the GM does none of the rolling. Um, and we can get into that a little bit later on uh it's a storytelling focused game uh the focus is really on the player characters and what they're doing how they're reacting uh and the gm has some tools to uh throw uh, obstacles and stuff like that in the way of the players but the players also have a way to uh say no, thank you. When the GM wants to <laughs> introduce one of those, um, and those are GM uh, intrusions, and we will also get into that a little bit later. Uh, so this review is based on we played a uh, we played a game of Numenera. The uh, rule set was the one from the Discovery book. Uh, I don't know if it's. We were talking about this before we started recording. We don't think that it's a a second edition in that there was like any changes to the rules uh but there was a like first edition of the game that was kickstarted and came out like seven years ago now something like Uh, that yeah and more recently monte cook games has put out uh the discovery and destiny books which are two books that make up the uh the core of numenera but you only really need discovery to get going um and we played the uh it's it's not the uh, beginner's box module. Uh, we use the characters from the beginner's box, but I ran the, uh, oh, the name is escaping me. It's a, it's one of the many modules. Sean, I think we can stop actually... and you can just look it up. <laughs> yes. That is actually a great idea because <laughs> I am floundering and I'm leaving this in because, well, it's not comedy gold. It's at least slightly funny. Uh <laughs> Ashes of the Sea by Sean K. Reynolds is the module that I ran. That's the name uh, of that module? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and 
the reason why that's interesting is that it has nothing to do with the sea. Uh, I would, depending on how, I guess, how badly things go when you get to that village, it could have something to do with ashes. But it's a module set in a uh, a incredibly remote mountain village uh, protected by some uh, Numenera, some ancient devices, so that there is... Uh, a livable space in this place where if you're outside of the force field, uh, you take cold damage every 10 minutes. So I realize why it's called ashes of the sea why it's because that? like all of the, the quote unquote snow is like seashells. Oh, that you have are hundred percent like, correct. Yeah. Yes. It yeah, only took was, both of us a minute. <laughs> yeah. That was the, the, it's a, it's a weird detail that uh, I guess, because this is the thing about Numenera is that it's it's based like one of the core tenets of the game is that things are weird. Um, so the the backstory, I guess, for the game is that it's a billion years in the future, which is uh, it's a it's amount of time that humans like we a billion is a number that we have trouble comprehending. And a billion years in the future um there have been nine previous ages, as they call it, and it's basically, uh, it's basically their way of saying that like there have been like huge empires have risen and fallen. They've like geoformed the Earth. They've done something to Mercury. It's not there anymore. Somebody at some point refueled the sun because as as far as our current science knows, the sun doesn't have a billion years left in it. So for it to still be going strong a billion years from now. Somebody helped it out. Yeah. The world um, has ended probably more than once and <laughs> come <yes>. back. <gasps> and like one of the things in the rule book is that it gives you a, a, po- a list of points for like explaining to the players in a kind of vague way, because it says stuff like um, during one of the ages, uh, it wasn't humans living on the earth. It was a race of aliens uh and humans were nowhere to be found so that means that at some point humanity died out in one of these many apocalypses and then somebody brought us back uh we don't know why we don't know who uh stuff like at one point the earth was the center of a star spanning empire uh, but the thing i like about this list and it's something i like about numenera in general is that the it doesn't give you like, okay, the first age is the one where humanity died out and aliens came and did stuff to the earth. It's like, no, this is just a list of points. It could be that from this list of like, it's 10 or 11 points, like five of them happened in a single age, but that's up to you as the GM. Uh, Or it could just be something that you hand to the players as part of like an introduction sheet that like, yeah, we don't know uh, who did what. We just know that this is the earth that you are on now. Um, and so there's stuff like uh, in Ashes of the Sea, one of the things that's in the in the module is the description of um, where the players are, because they the very start of the module, there's a, a a kind of a quick start section where if the players are unfamiliar with with role playing games or they are um, you want to give them some chance to play around with the rules. And I, I skipped this to just the, the next section, but. The first section is they're exploring a like an ancient ruin and they accidentally activate a teleporter and end up in this area where Ashes of the Sea takes place. They end up in this big hangar. And one of the things that the module notes is when they go outside, uh, at first you think it's snowing, but it's actually this like really fine grit of seashells. And it's 
like we just said, like that's ashes of the sea. It's these, you know, shell snow is what the game calls it. But um, I think that that's there as, uh, and I'm realizing this now, especially once we like the name clicked, is that Numenera is about the weird. Um, one of the things that it tells you in the discovery book in the GM sections is that when you're, if you're creating your own modules or like in the modules that you can find, there is this concept of things are weird and you're not really meant to understand them. Um, and like the, this shell snow is a good example. Like, is it there because somebody created it? Is it because this was the bottom of the sea and all of the dead uh, shellfish have been like ground down into this fine powder and, you know, the cold made them brittle and they turned into this fine powder or is it something else? And that is kind of laid into a lot of the way that the storytelling of Numenera is supposed to work. Um, And I think that that's really cool because it's one of the things that I found when I was running D&D, especially with the homebrew campaign, was that I could think of all of these really cool things or I'd see an image online and and think like, oh, that would be really cool to have that as a as a set piece. But in D&D, it feels like I guess to me, though, it feels like if you introduce something, then you might at some point have to be ready to explain like, yeah, this giant statue carved into a mountain uh, is a king from some ancient age because his tomb is actually behind there and you like you can end up using it as the place where the sword that can kill the bad guy is but it feels like there kind of needs to be an explanation or like it's just super ancient history and nobody even the elves really remembers anymore kind of stuff but in Numenera it's just you can have these weird bizarre things and you don't have to worry about coming up, up with an explanation it's just yeah, somebody in a previous age did a weird thing and now you're encountering it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a really nice thing about the system is like, I think with what you were saying about D&D, where like, it feels like everything needs an explanation um, because it is a very ordered world with history and stuff like that in its own way. Whereas Numenera is, you know, after the chaos of Armageddon's and like obliteration and resurrection and all this weird stuff. So like, you can just be like, yeah, here's this very specific detail, but no reason behind it. Yeah. Which lets the players sit there and go, Oh man, I wonder, I wonder what this is about. Oh, did this happen? Maybe this happened. It's, it's in building a lot of mysteries and stuff like that, where the players might come up with a better explanation than you anyway. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, the place where it's kind of further tied into the game is in uh, the the actual Numenera, because Numenera is the term that the game uses to describe all of the technology left behind by previous ages. And you're able to find Numenera in several different forms from, uh, you know, a, maybe there's a giant installation built into a mountain that does something, or there's a, uh, as part of character creation, you get artifacts, which are little things that don't do anything as far as you know. They're just there as like, the uh, D&D has something similar. Oh, you're, you're talking like, about oddities. Uh, they're oddities, called yes. oddities in Numenera, and you were thinking of trinkets in D&D. Yes, that is, those are the terms that I was looking for. And the oddities are things like, uh, like in the game that we played, one of the characters has a small crystal that uh, shatters randomly and then reforms. And 
that's that's all you know about it that's all it does um and it's further tied in with the actual ciphers and this is where the cipher system really gets its name from is that the the characters and the classes are kind of built in a way that they the game is expecting the gm to hand out these ciphers which are one use devices that can have a multitude of different effects from healing to giving you uh points back in one of your pools it can uh function as a weapon it can function as a defensive thing it could be a light or something but they're they're one use devices that you can only hold a limited number of um and the gm is kind of meant to be giving them out as players use up other ones uh because they kind of fill the role of a lot of character like what you think of as character skills in D&D almost like you have this rotating list of one shot abilities that you get uh that you can use to do stuff and they're the way they're described in the book is that like yeah this is something that'll heal you but that might not have been its intended purpose it like this small vial of strange liquid it might have been you know some component of a starship that just so happens to heal humans or that uh teleporter might have been part of a wormhole gateway and you're misusing it and you get one shot to teleport 500 feet and then it burns out but yeah that whole like sense of mystery and weirdness is kind of baked into the game from the ground floor and i really like that yeah i have i think some things to say about ciphers i think they are a brilliant little piece of like mechanics for the game and that like as you said they kind of stand in for some of like spells and special attacks and stuff like that you do have those two in the game but they're less of a focus these ciphers i i like them because they they avoid the magic item problem that something like D has where you're like oh i've got this like list of stuff i have that i'm gonna never use because i keep on forgetting about it um for for some players there you know there are always players who are like hyper aware of everything they have but it like the game encourages you actively to use your stuff so you can find more stuff and use it. Yeah. And it's something that um the, the, as a as a GM I like it because I found that in D&D I was planning encounters around the abilities of the characters that the players the PCs um because I knew that like okay this person has a you know, a mandolin that, that makes them better as a bard at doing these specific things. And this person has a flaming sword. So, you know, I can, you know, throw enemies that are immune to fire at them if I want it to be harder or like, it felt like after a while you're building encounters around the stuff that you've given to the players. Whereas in with ciphers, because they're one use items, you can, you know, have them get some ciphers that you know that they'll be using in an encounter or two because they will be really useful for those encounters and then you don't have to worry about them anymore because they have used them and even if they don't use them and just hold on to them at some point they will use them and then they will be gone and then you can not have to worry about them anymore yeah it's like you don't you can't accidentally give someone an overpowered magic item or if you do they can only use it once so it's not a problem (laughs) Yeah. Um and that like you could adapt some of that to D&D but it's built into the cipher system which is actually used for a couple of other games as well. Um but 
anyway, so that was, I think, a pretty good introduction to like the game, the setting, and like some of the the, the actual Numenera and ciphers. I think we should take a step back though and start uh, start with characters and creation and all of that stuff. Um, so one of the things that it took me a little while to wrap my head around when I was uh, reading through the rule book is how characters and character creation works in Numenera. And I think it's because it's, it's really trying to do the like narrative descriptive thing of helping you build a character based on a description of who you want that character to be rather than a more system oriented game like D and D where you create a character, like you figure out like, Oh, I want to play a cleric of this domain and like maybe use these weapons and then maybe figure out who that character is based on their class and abilities and stats and all that. Um, and you've more recently read the character creation rules. So why don't you take us through that? Okay. So I'm going to say this is with the caveat that I was using the original Numenera rulebook. Cause that's the one I got. So I like the way the characters work. I have a problem with the layout of character creation in that particular book in that like it doesn't have a step-by-step guide and i know there are some people that like denigrate the like quote-unquote hand holding of like how to make characters in some games but you know for a new person to a system that is the easiest way to do it just like a step-by-step list um the original core book of numenera didn't really have that but it sort of did but it was unclear from an initial glance right (laughs) um so how character creation works is basically you pick your character type first. Uh, there are only three in the original rules. I think there are now an additional official three, like another three additional ones. Yeah, um, in the Discovery and Destiny, Discovery has three, and then Destiny, I think, has an additional three. But okay. I only have Discovery, so I can't completely verify that. We'll, we'll talk about the three main ones, because these are the ones we also saw in action when we were playing, right? Yeah. There's the Glaive, Nano, and Jack. Glaive is more of a warrior, like in a very broad sense. Um, Net or Nano is more of a caster slash like intelligence based kind of class, and the Jack is more a speed based class. So think like a rogue or a monk or something like that. Yeah. That said, um, you select those. That gives you your base stats, and then it gives you a few character abilities, and then a few character options. It's actually not a lot on its own, uh, which I actually rather like about it because the descriptor and the focus, which are the other two things you select, um, kind of feeding into what Sean was saying earlier about like really kind of establishing who your character is, gives you more specific abilities. So say you choose a descriptor, which can be, it's usually a one word descriptor of your character, like you're charismatic. Okay, well, what do I get from being charismatic? I get bonus to my int stat. I get, I think, two additional or something like that. I get an like I get a contact somewhere. I get abilities for talking to people. I get uh, inabilities. That's the other nice thing about the descriptors is they give you a like a drawback. So like I think for charismatic characters, it's like you're very good at talking to people. You're very bad at retaining information that's not not related to interacting with people. Yeah. So and we'll like, get more into how skills and 
hindering works a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but so you choose a descriptor, it gives you a bunch of stuff. And it's not just that there's additional stuff like you get like, I think each one is about a half page worth of stuff that you, like stats and abilities that your character gets. Great. Yeah, so in in discovery, there's a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, twelve descriptors. Yeah, I think that's about the same in the original core. Um, and then after that, you choose your focus. Your focus is generally a slightly longer character description, and that's ability, special abilities and combat skills that make a character unique. So um, one of the players in our game was uh, had a cloak of ice, or like a like a sheen of ice, or like wears a sheen of ice, which yeah. has abilities, uh, an ability to basically manifest like ice armor and have some other cold related stuff um and like that's like there's i think there's only a dozen or or 16 or something of those as well um but i'm looking at the character sheet on sean's video and it looks very colorful um (laughs) (laughs) and uh something that so like the way that the game uh introduces this is that you you have you take your character name your descriptor uh your type and your focus, and it becomes a sentence. Yeah. So, uh, I don't want to use my name. I'm gonna. No, I don't have any of the other character sheets handy. I'm so like, Jesse, a glaive who is charismatic and walks through the dark places. Yeah, would um, be more uh, a pretty accurate example. Yeah, and 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 th- that's something that I really like because rather than having a wide uh, like a a larger selection of classes where each class is super well defined in what it does maybe less so in the cl- <laughs> in the case of rangers but um <laughs> uh you get this ability to to create a character who feels very unique um and i i think that's something that some people when they first hear that there's only three quote unquote classes they're like there's only three. How do you make that work if I have a group of like four or five people? And the way that it works is that you could have a group that is all jacks and all of them feel very different because of the descriptor and the focus that they've taken. You can have one who is, you know, a flamboyant fire master uh, and you can have one who's a, yeah, like it, there's, there's so many descriptors and ways that they combine that you are really able to create a unique character and have them do unique things. Yeah, so the way I look at the types and I have to I have to caveat this with like I have not made a character that I've used in a game. We use pre-gens for the one Sean ran. Um but like upon looking at it it's kind of it kind of feels like each type at least from the core 3 are focused on whatever stat pool. So, you know, Jacks are more speed, nanos are more intelligence, and glaives are more might. So it's more like, well, which one of those do you want to focus on first? And then you branch out from there. Yeah. There is a bit more to it than that, but that is kind of the core of what I see them at, the classes, the types as. Yeah. Because, yeah, the like, like you said, you can choose to be like a glaive and then choose a descriptor that gives you maybe some more speed points uh, so that you can be a little bit more speedy more often. Um, And this rolls nicely into 
uh, the actual attributes because uh, Numenera and the Cypher system, they just have three core attributes. Like Jesse said, might, speed, and intellect. And the way these work, they're not so much static numbers the way they are in, in D&D or other systems similar to it. They're actually the maximum number for a pool. Uh, and you have three of these pools. And the way that these pools work, and this was the other thing that took me a little while to wrap my head around, is that they are a combination of like endurance, HP, and just like how much you can get done before you have to rest. Because uh, one of the things that Numenera has is, and this is where we'll start introducing skills and whatnot, but when you want to make a roll, um, the GM sets a difficulty from one to 10, and then you multiply that number by three to get what you're trying to beat on your D20. And that means that the difficulty, the target you're trying to beat goes from three to 30. Obviously, you can't roll higher than a 20 on a D20. Uh, I think we're all fairly aware of that fact. But uh, there's no bonuses that get applied to your roll. So the way that the game works is that you use your skills and equipment to lower the difficulty. So if I say climbing this wall is difficulty is going to be difficulty five. It's it's fairly a, you know a sheer wall. There's not many handholds. It's pretty difficult. Um, an untrained person would have no no chance of climbing this wall. What the the players can then do is say like, okay, well I've got a climbing skill and I've got these you know climbing claws that let me climb walls a little bit easier. Those two things together, like if they're trained in the skill that reduces the difficulty by one. If they are specialized, it reduces it by two. That piece of equipment also reduces it by one. So if they are specialized and have a piece of equipment, that difficulty drops from five down to two, which means that the target they're trying to roll against went from 15 to six. And the way that points come in, the pools come in, is that you can further... Uh, reduce the difficulty by putting in effort. And to put in effort, you have to spend uh, points from your pool. You spend three points uh, per level of effort. And uh, there's some limitations on how much effort you can spend. Like a first level character can only spend one level of effort. But between effort and skills and equipment, you can lower the difficulty so much. Uh, like a first level character, if they've got two pieces of equipment and two skills or a single train skill, and they put in a level of effort, difficulty five becomes zero, which means that you just succeed at the task. Yeah, because you are appropriately skilled and equipped for it, which is a thing I love about the the way that the challenge system works. Yeah, and there's uh, some modifications that, that are made, like if you have the, with each stat with might speed and intellect you have your pool and you have your edge and edge is a uh, it's a modifier in that like it changes how many points you have to spend from that pool when you either use effort or when you use one of your special abilities like the uh the wares of sheen of ice the ability to create that ice armor that protects you gives you one point of armor uh you have to spend one point of intellect i think it was 
Um, but if your character has one edge, using that ability is now free. Uh, yeah. Or if you're going to spend, uh, you know, three points from your might pool to try and do something, if you've got edge in your or might edge, I don't know how it's said when you're playing through the game, but if you've got like a point of might edge, then rather than having to spend three points to put in a level of effort, you only have to spend two. And this becomes important when we get to the next kind of point about the pools in which they are also your hit points. <laughs> yes. And so it might seem like that'll end up being pretty deadly because the pools aren't super big to begin with. Like on average, it's eight or nine points per pool. Uh, you might have like, I think up to like, 11 or 12 on some of the pregens and that's because of the descriptor that was used for that character gave them some extra points uh for their pool maximum but it doesn't really end up being that way because in numenera so the the game uses static damage so you're not rolling dice to determine how much damage is done for for characters they have access to to light medium and heavy weapons which do two four and six points of damage respectively and the NPCs and monsters that you fight do also do static damage. And the amount of damage, like a heavy weapon does six points, which can be a lot, but characters have armor that they can use to uh, reduce how much damage they take. And the other thing is that the uh, when a character is attacked, when they are... Uh, defending themselves they're making a role so the players have the option to spend effort to reduce the difficulty of avoiding an attack and that might sound counterproductive because you know you're spending points to avoid losing points but the difference between like getting hit and just spending a point or two if you've got enough edge is can be the difference between like yeah, you might have taken those points in damage anyways, but that attack might have come with additional downsides like being knocked over so that you're easier to hit next time or uh, maybe being stunned so that you can't do anything. Like Usually the attacks that are coming towards players have more than just a damage amount attached to them, which is an interesting way of doing things. And sometimes, because the way damage generally works is it first you take it from the might pool and then the speed pool and then the intellect pool, but some attacks are specific. They specifically hit intellect, they specifically hit speed. So for a glaive, you do not want to be taking intellect damage generally. Um, on the other hand, you know that might be fine if you're a nano, but you definitely don't want to be taking might. You want to avoid taking might damage or speed damage. Yeah, and the the way that the the pools work is that at once one pool is gone, uh, your I can't remember the term, but there's like rather than like it being a binary state of being alive or dead, every pool that you lose starts to impose, uh, starts to hamper your ability to do things. Uh, like for example, when you have no more speed, you can no longer move. Yeah. So here I've got the damage track. So at first, when you lose your first pool, you become impaired. Uh, it takes an additional plus one effort per level. You ignore minor and major results on your attacks. 
Um, and combat rolls of 17 to 20 deal only plus one damage instead of their kind of building additional damage. When right. you're out of two pools, you become debilitated. You can only move an immediate distance, but if your speed is zero, you cannot move at all. And then once your third pool is gone, you are dead. Yeah. And that was a, a something that I, I forgot about a little bit was that the way that the attack rolls work in Numenera is rather than just having a, uh, like a one is a failure and a 20 is a critical success. But the way that those work is that um, rather than there being some kind of like, oh, you drop your weapon or some something set in stone for when you have a critical fail, it actually allows the GM a free intrusion, which the GM can use to say like, yeah, you you drop your sword because you hit this guy's shield really weird and it just you know vibrated out of your hand or whatever the case may be. Um, because usually a GM has to offer the player something when they do an intrusion. We'll get to that after this bit, I think. Um, but on the other side of things, it's not just a critical success on a 20 where you do a little bit more damage because starting at 17 uh, all the way up to 20, you get extra damage if you roll that well. So a 17 is a plus one damage, and I think it goes up to plus four with the 20. Yeah, so 18 plus two... 19 plus 3, 20 plus 4. Yeah. But the additional thing you get for rolling a 20 is um, I think you get like there's major and minor effects. And at a 20, you get a major effect, which is I can't remember if there's a list or anything, but like you get to do something extra. You get to do something a little bit more than just like, yeah, you dealt four extra points of damage. It could be something like you stunned them or you knocked them down or those things that the GM might be able to use against you, you can now use against this, whatever you're fighting. Yeah. You pushed it off a cliff. Yeah. Something like that. Um, so the, the combat can like at first when you, you hear that it's all static damage numbers, it can sound like, well, it's just then an attrition game of whoever gets the most hits in, but depending on how well you roll when you're attacking, how well you roll when you're defending. And like, if you use an ability to, to boost your damage or to give you some extra armor, uh, the players have a lot of options and depending on how they roll extra damage boosts that they can use to deal with foes a lot quicker. And one of the things that I do like about Numenera that's built into the rules, and I think the only other system that I've encountered this in was Star Wars Edge of the Empire, is that if you want to have a fight with like 10 goons, like say they're in a bar and they get into a fight and they end up in a fight with 10 gang members, rather than having to run every gang member individually, you can create, they're called swarms. Um, which is the term regardless of what kind of creature that you're using this with. But um, you basically take all of those uh, creatures and you group them up into a single meta creature. And what that does is it improves the, the health a little bit, but it also makes them a little bit more dangerous and they do a little bit more damage. I think it's it increases their uh, their level by one and they do three extra points of damage. So rather than having to go through and do an attack roll for all 10 gang members, you have these five gang members do a single attack and you can narrate it as like, 
you know, this one's throwing a bottle and this one's trying to stab you. Like they're, they're coordinating their attacks in these two groups. And it means that like combat goes quite a bit quicker because you don't have to worry about rolling every single attack. It's this group of five gang members is going to try and attack. You roll to defend. Hey, you defended yourself. Cool. Now you get to attack. Like it moves a lot quicker when you have larger battles. And that is something as a GM that I cannot give enough praise. Yeah, a thing I thought was uh, really neat because you ran a swarm of like laser bot things against us. Yeah. Um, is that like, I think the way they were built is even if you dodged them, the heat from all of their numerous lasers would still do damage to you. And I thought that was a really neat effect. Yeah, that because that was something that's part of the the stat block for that uh that enemy it's they're called gazers i think they're basically like think the uh interrogation droid from star wars a new hope except it can shoot a laser they're mini death stars basically and like one of them on their own um they can do quite a bit of damage but what they get when you turn them into a swarm is that even if they miss they still do a point of damage because all of them firing at once creates so much heat that the characters still get hurt. Yeah. Uh, and I think I, I haven't checked because uh, I was only looking at the, the monsters included in the uh, Ashes of the Sea module, but I would not be surprised to find that most of the monsters in the various books have something like that in their stat block where when they are in a swarm, they get an extra ability because they're bunch of them working in concert yeah and that makes a lot of sense like it's it's a very smart idea and it's like a really easy thing once you've already built a monster stat block to be like oh yeah and if they're a swarm they get this this is extra detail that's easy to put in there yeah and something that i i read online that uh i really like about numenera um because when you're creating an NPC or you're creating a monster or something that they're going to fight, um, all you have to do is give that NPC or monster a level. Uh, and that level is their difficulty. It's their, it determines how much health they have so that, you know, if you say like, Oh, this is a, it's a level two, uh, I don't know, cyber Bobcat that they're going to be fighting. That means that its difficulty is two. So, you know, trying to hit it is they're trying to beat a six, trying to defend, they're trying to beat a six. But from that initial point, you can define extra bits and pieces if you want to. Like if you're doing this when you're prepping, you can add more details. Like they maybe they've got slightly more health. When they're uh when they're attacking, the difficulty is higher and it has to use their speed pool because it's a really fast creature or whatever it is that you want to do. Um, But if you're in the heat of the moment and the players suddenly get into a fight with a bunch of gang members, all you need to do is create, just figure out how difficult are they to fight, which is just picking a number between one and 10. And that is something, again, I think the closest that I've seen come to that is uh, Star Wars Edge of the Empire, where NPCs have very few stats, so it's pretty easy to come up with stats on the fly. And it's, I think, the one of the bigger shortcomings for D&D is the ability to come up with a creature on the fly. Like, the, I think even in just the base player's handbook, there's a couple of, like, stat blocks for, like, a gang member, a cultist, and, 
you know, people you might meet throughout town and a couple of basic creatures. But when you're trying to do an improv game or even just like a regular game and the players decide that they're going to get into a fight with a bunch of townsfolk, like trying to come up with the stats for what they're fighting is not really a quick thing in my experience. It's something that you have to have prepared beforehand. You have to know that the players might want to fight something or be super willing to say like, didn't know you were going to try and fight this. Give me some time to come up with the stats. Yeah, it's it's a really elegant solution that it's it's so easy to make a monster on the fly in the cipher system. Yeah. And it's all based within the overall mechanics that other parts of the game are using, so it's not even like you need to learn a separate thing. Yeah. You're already using the challenge system. Yeah. And I think the one of the last things that we definitely need to cover before we talk about any other bits and pieces is something that I've I've kind of been forgetting to mention and it's because we didn't I didn't use it a lot while we were playing and it's the GM intrusion and the way that intrusions work in Numenera in the cipher system is as a GM uh, I say like okay I've got two XP uh, which is actually a lot of XP like a single XP in Numenera is actually a pretty big deal because it has more uses than just leveling up, which we'll get to in a second. I keep saying we'll get to it in a second, but there is <laughs> trying not to go on super tangents. Um, the GM says, I've got two XP and I'm going to give that to you, Jesse, uh, to do to do an intrusion. And then Jesse can, if he has XP, he can say, no, I'm going to spend one XP to not have this thing happen to me. Or he can accept that XP and give one to another player with uh, some kind of reason. Uh, but an intrusion is something can be something from like, uh, you know, they're rather than, you know, being able to travel from point A to point B with nothing bad happening. You can say like, well, I'm going to do an intrusion to have, you know, these crazy weird bears show up and you have to fight them. Or, uh, you know, this merchant really didn't like what you said and is going to try and charge you way more. Or like in a fight, it can be something like. Uh, your attack was successful, but uh, your sword got stuck in this robot and uh, you now have to get it back from them before you can use it again or pretty much whatever you want to do. And the thing that I like about the idea of intrusions is that I read something that described it as intrusions are a way of introducing not homebrew rules or anything, but having giving the GM the ability to introduce difficulty without having... No, I've completely forgotten what that so thing was saying. So if I can jump on that, because I think I have a yes. bit of a, an idea. It's So it's not the same as the exact example you were using, but you know how, for example, you're trying to set up a situation in D&D where something's trying to sneak up on the party. And you got to roll everyone's perceptions, remember their passive perception is, and all that stuff. Intrusion basically lets you go, Okay, uh, you get ambushed. Yeah, this is my intrusion. Here's two experience points. Oh, you want to? You want? You don't want to accept that? Okay, you don't get ambushed. You figure out they're coming yeah. before they get there. It's just an example, but I think it it kind of nicely illustrates both the difference between this and the biggest fantasy RPG, um, but also just like a very the system again is very elegant. You say the thing happens. If the players want to spend their resource to stop the thing from happening, they can do that. Which is which is 
so great because that's what everything in Cypher is. It's you have these resources, you can spend them to make the outcome better for the player. But the player might choose to save them because for X, Y, or Z reasons. Yeah. And the the purpose of intrusion, you're not using it to try and punish the players, trying to make their lives harder because you think they've been having it too easy. Um, it's a way to, like, maybe if they get a critical fail and you get a free intrusion, like, yeah, you can make that failure, you know, a little bit more extreme or a little bit uh, tougher to deal with the consequences. Uh, you know, their sword has fallen and skittered across the room and it's going to take them a whole round to go and grab it. But the one of the purposes of GM intrusions and is specifically to handle outright shortcomings in the rules. You know, if there is a situation where you're thinking as a GM, oh, I really want to do this thing, um, you know, maybe in, in D&D or Monster of the Week or whatever it is that you're playing, there's something that you would really like to do, you know, during this set piece battle or when they're talking to the the mayor of a town or whatever, you want to have this thing happen. Intrusions let you do that thing without having to figure out how to make it work in the rules. Um, like you could use an intrusion to say like, um, you know, the the mayor was super unhappy with how you handled something. And so when you come to meet him, he puts all of you under arrest and now you're in jail rather than having to just like DM fiat. You're all now in jail. You give the players the chance to say like, okay, we'll take this XP and we'll go to jail because you know, you might have something cool planned or they can say like, no, we're going to spend an XP and fight these guards and try to escape. Like it gives, there's more back and forth in like how those moments play out. It encourages working with the players to tell the story and yeah. it, i mean it's it ends up being a yes no game of sorts which is not always great if you have a very specific story in mind but I, I you know i think as as the saying goes you know if you have a very specific story in mind you might be better off writing a book yeah and yeah i think a it's it's something that is is hard to get used to as a gm because i'm I've been playing mostly d and I've played some other systems, but even the other systems that I played, those kind of moments of like, like you were saying, like reinforcements, like I think that is one of the best examples of how to use an intrusion is like, there's, there's kind of three options when reinforcements arrive. It's either there's no reinforcements, the reinforcements are definitely there and the players have no say, or the reinforcements might be there and you can negotiate with the players if they're there, how they arrive, that kind of thing, using a GM intrusion. And in a lot of other systems, these kind of things, it's like, yeah, you've only got two options. Either they're there or they're not. And the only thing that the players control, well, not even really control, is do they notice these you know, reinforcements before they arrive or do they get surprised? Wow. Uh, and that's based on a role or just their stats. Yeah. And I think a really important thing about intrusions is because we've kind of been talking about it like it's between the DM and the whole party. But what it really is, is it's between the DM and one of the players at the table. Yeah. So usually so like, whoever would be worse affected by a thing happening or who is directly affected, like the ground splits open underneath you. Yeah. 
Like that would be a specific, right? Yeah. Or for the example, example of uh, like reinforcements or somebody sneaking up on the party while they're sleeping out in the wilderness, it's an intrusion with the player who's like on watch, for example, or if they didn't put anybody on watch, you just choose a player and say like, Hey, let's negotiate this thing. Um, Or yeah, but I, I like the intrusions and I like what they can be used for because it, really ties into that the idea that this is a much more narrative game than something like D&D. And I think it's just, it's a muscle that I haven't quite worked on before. Because like, there are somewhat similar things in other games. Like in, uh, again, going back to Star Wars Edge of the Empire, there's the Force Points, which is this small pool of resources that get flipped back and forth between the GM and the players. Um, but what you're able to do with those is kind of more limited and the players don't really get anything for accepting one of the, the GM using the force point. Um, and I, th- I can't quite remember cause it's been a while. I think rejecting the GM trying to use a force point requires using a force point. And so it becomes the thing of like, eventually the players have no more force points and the GM has this like, pool of bad things about to happen yeah Whereas, oh go I, ahead i i would say that's pretty similar to how it works in the cipher system because you know at the start or if you spend enough xp you don't have any anymore yeah but the uh, i think the thing with the the fact that you're using xp is that xp is in the cipher system is partially a resource you use to level up like i think you only need three or four to like choose another character option or get some more points in a pool, that kind of thing. But you can also use XP to, to reroll. If you got a particularly bad role, you can use it to refuse a GM intrusion. Um, It's something that uh, I found interesting is that XP is supposed to, it's, they're not quite like ciphers, but they are in the way that you're kind of supposed to be using them a bunch it's not like you can hoard them up if you want to like you, there's an ability that you really want to get, but new, like the Numenera and the cipher system, it's not a game where you go from level one being a nobody to level 20. You're a God amongst mortals in Numenera and the cipher system, a level one character is already kind of an impressive person. They already have abilities and have done things that most normal townsfolk have never dreamt of doing. Um, like they're able to spend effort, which I don't think if you took a random townsperson, they wouldn't be able to do that if you turn them into a character. So, you know, XP in Numenera is something that like, yeah, you can hoard it, try to level up, or you can like, you can be spending it to reject intrusions. You can be spending it to, to get, to do re-rolls because you're having a particularly bad day and you keep rolling ones, but using it to do re-rolls and reject intrusions doesn't mean that your character is less able to do things further on down the line. And I think that's an interesting use of XP as a mechanic. And it almost feels like it needs a different name at some point because it's not just a leveling up thing. It's a resource you spend kind of like your pools. I'm still XP is one of the things that I'm still a little uncertain about. Like I understand how it works with intrusions. 
I don't understand exactly how it works for leveling up because I know you can use it to upgrade some skills or reduce the cost of like armor and stuff like that. But I'm not sure how when like how the tier progression works. Yeah, and that's something that you can't really get into in a one shot. It's more of a campaign thing. But um, yeah, it's a. It's an interesting way to have a resource that you can... Oh, I found it. I found it. (laughs) Um, So how it works is after you have used XP four times to improve your character, you then go up to the next tier. Right. And I think uh, when you're using XP, like you can't... uh, like there's I think there's specifically four things that you can do. And like one of them is... Uh, get another edge so that uh, you don't have to spend as many points. You can upgrade a pool. Uh, I think you can get another skill, and there's one other thing that I can't remember. Oh, so um, you can reduce the cost for armor because this is a thing we didn't get into when we were playing. But wearing car- armor has an hourly might cost. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I not my favorite rule. <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that, I don't know, is that for all armor? I thought there were... Yeah, so I was looking this up earlier because it was a thing I noticed that really irritated me um, because it's very um, simulationist where a lot of the the rest of the game doesn't feel that way. Uh, um, so uh, armor has two costs. One is speed. That makes sense. You're wearing heavy armor. You're slower. Got it. The other is an hourly might, might cost. So for every hour that you're in arm, certain kinds of armor, and I think all you lose a certain amount of might. Interesting. Yeah, and I mean, there's ways to reduce it, like spending XP, but it's still one of those things where I'm like, oh, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the with the spending XP to improve your character, um, you can't do one thing four times. You have to do each one of the four, and then you're at the next tier, and then you have the chance to do all four again. Um, yeah. So, one of each kind of benefit yeah um and i'm i'm sure there's things that we we haven't talked about but like we've covered pretty much all the basics of you know character pools edge intrusions all of that kind of stuff um and i think I, i'm curious to see how you felt playing numenera even it was only so we played a a one shot we did this uh module we got like i'd say 95 percent of the way through and then we ran out of time and i kind of just narrated us through the last little bit um, yeah that that's a thing right like part of the problem uh with playing a new system especially only one time is a lot of time is spent being like okay wait how does this work oh okay um, yeah and that happens with everything that happens with almost every game you play um even if it's very straightforward uh, so you know, it's it was it's funny because like I enjoyed it for playing a new system and trying it out. I I would say it is definitely one of the like lower in like fun recalls of a session, partially because uh, I think for me, since I was trying to mostly figure out the system because we we're going to talk about it, um, but I think also for the others because it's like you now new system which we have to learn and we've only got four or five hours. There was not a lot of RP. Yeah, and I want to be clear that is not because the system doesn't allow for it. That was because we didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is that's one of the things where I think the the skill system is really useful for doing RP and storytelling stuff is that the 
I, I like how the, the, the cipher system is set up so that whether you're doing like a role-playing heavy game or a combat heavy game or a mix, the system can handle all of it equally well because it's just, you set a difficulty. Do you have the right skills? Do you have some equipment? And like, there are like one of the characters in the, the pre-generated characters that we used, one of them had a cipher that it's a mask that when you put it on, makes you better at social interactions for like an hour or something. And like a lot better, I think. Yeah. Like noticeably better. And so like, it is possible to have a game that is much more focused on role play and interactions with characters and doesn't require trying to figure out like this is kind of one of my problems. I think it's an issue that quite a few people have with D&D is that there are a lot of rules that deal with combat and you know attacks of opportunity and how spells work and placement and all that kind of stuff. When it comes to trying to convince somebody of a thing the core rules kind of just have it's a static role against a difficulty class and it's on the gm or players to come up with things like you know skill checks or like figuring out how you do checks throughout a dialogue to see how much you're influencing somebody whereas numenera like you still might have to do some of that with numenera but the fact that the core dice rolling mechanic works equally well for both i think is a a nice change from something that is more focused on just combat yeah i will say i think one of the high strong points about numenera and the cipher system in general is it is a system where you could run an entire campaign without combat if you wanted to and people could still improve their characters i mean I wouldn't do that. You'd still be not using a bunch of parts of the characters. Combat is certainly part of it, but like, especially since XP is based on complications, not on monsters killed, like you can really base a whole thing around talking to people, exploring an area, discovering things and still leveling up and the system supports it. Yeah. Um, And I think that like with Numenera, like some of the issues that I had with, with the rules and with the modules it's i would say that like on the whole the the numenera discovery book is pretty well laid out um it has a whole hundred page section so one of the things about the setting of numenera is that it's so far in the future that there is just a single supercontinent on earth and oh, cool. and the setting is uh, in the books covers a small portion of that supercontinent, but it is a very well thought out and documented portion of that supercontinent. Like there are several kingdoms and it gives you history and like key characters and a little bit of history. Um, there's enough there that you could use it as a springboard for your, for your own campaign, but there's also enough room on the supercontinent to just, place it somewhere, place your campaign somewhere else and have your own unique section of the earth. Yeah. Um, you know, Sean, I think we're at about the wrapping up point. Yes. We've been recording so, a while. Yeah. I would say that I would play Numenera again, gladly. And I, I would even actually say that we should find another Cypher system game at some point and review it so we can talk about the system a bit more. Yes, there is actually uh, one that I do really want to try, which is, I think it's called The Strange, where... It really super leans on the weird aspect of the cipher system. Um, 
but yes, we should do something like that uh, in the future. I think getting into the wrapping up portion um, as a GM playing the one shot, uh, my feelings coming out of it are, were kind of more like it validated a lot of the hopes that I had going into running the game, which was that um, the players rolling everything definitely takes a load off the GM. There is less to manage during combats. Uh, the difficulty system makes it quite a bit easier to throw challenges at the players and to have a player shine if they've got the skills and equipment and even just the points left in their pool to make something a lot easier. Um, and I think it is something we would find, uh, like, again, we only played the single four-hour session and like you said, a lot of that was taken up with like, how does this rule work? How do we uh, adjudicate this thing happening? But I could see there being a lot of fun and interesting things that come, can come out of this system, uh, like from GM intrusions and just the players having a few more options with how they want to deal with things than something a little bit more structured. Uh, and yeah, I I would really li- love to run this game again or be a player. I think that would be that would be fun as well. Yeah, I would say from what little, like granted, again, from what little we've played it, I think this is a, an ideal in-between kind of game from something that's a bit more crunch heavy, like a D&D, or I guess crunch medium, like a D&D, and rules light. Like, there is still a lot to the game. Like, there are two, like, 400-page books or or whatever the two different books are, right? Um, but it's pretty easy to grasp it's pretty straightforward but it still like leaves a lot of room for customization and stuff like that yeah so yeah um numenera we give it seven ciphers out of set out of ten (laughs) (laughs) yeah everything is sevens (laughs) um yeah so i think that's where we end up with it's a it's a really fun game we'd like to play it again uh we'll try a different cypher system game though to to see how a different setting affects the cipher system um and something that i I do want to mention is that the cipher system uh there's a there's a core there's a cipher system rule book that can be used to play pretty much any kind of game whether you want it to be fantasy a superhero game whatever there's numenera uh and there's the strange and i think those are the three cipher system rule books out there i part of me wants to say there's a fourth but i can't remember if that's my imagination or not but anyways um so if if numenera and you know sci-fi fantasy set in the incredibly far future is not your bag then there are other things that use the cipher system if the system itself interests you um so yeah but i think that is where we are going to wrap it up yes it has been already over an hour yep so Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to our show. We are proud members of the Cave Goblin Podcast Network. Find us and other shows at cavegoblins.com. You can support us and our network by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cavegoblins or by joining our Discord. You can also support us by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to the show. You can find us on Twitter at DMs of Vancouver. You can find me at Jesse Boros, and you can find Sean at Sean P. Hagen. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. See more of her work at HaleyBoros.com. That is it for this episode. Hope to see you out there at the gaming table. 
Yes. Bye. Bye. I'm Piers Ray. Sitting with me is Eric Ivanovich. My name is Eric Ivanovich. We're the hosts of Podcast vs. Podcast right here on the Cave Goblin Network. This is the only podcast pitching show on the internet. Tune in. Find out if we can ever find the perfect podcast. Or, more importantly, can we agree on it? This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.